Let's open with a word of prayer and um, just ask God's guidance on us and his covering over us as we go into this and as we go through our lives and our days at home. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can be here. We thank you for your presence. We thank you so much for all that you've done for us. And we just pray that your blessing will be on us this morning as we study we ask, Lord, that you'll open the eyes of our hearts. We pray for those who can't be here or those who uh, have loved ones at home that aren't well. We just ask, God, that your guidance will be upon them and your care will be over them. We just ask, Lord, that you would uh, lead us now as we look into your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so this, this week we're going to try um, doing an audio uh, again, it didn't work last week at all. It ended after 34 seconds. So we'll see what happens. Um, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Exodus chapter 4. And I'm actually going to take what were the last two questions on last week's sheet. And I've got them on this sheet and, and we'll um, start with them. And the other thing I want to try to do, which is hard for me to do, is kind of stay on the outline as you have it, because I know that some of you have a hard time if I don't do that. You wonder where I am, and I probably don't know where I am either. <laughs> so I'm going to try to do that. Um, sometimes I, I get carried away. So um, we'll just begin with lesson two and finishing up what really is part of the call of Moses on his life. Um, and we find that in the portion that we're beginning with in Exodus 4, chapter 4, verses 18, uh, down to the end, Moses begins to step out in faith. And you remember from last week's lesson, all Moses could think of were his own um, inabilities. Did not see the ability of God at all before him. Was living really on the record of his past and of his failures. And when God called Moses, in his mind, he was the least and the last that God should have chosen. But God had other plans. And that's what we're going to see through this, that God has a way out for us, out of those things in our past and even in our present that bind us and keep us from developing and serving him fully. So I'm going to just start... Um, with a few verses here from chapter 4, and it's actually the first question on your um, outline. And the question is, and you can think about this as we read, what evidence is there in these verses that Moses has made a decision to move forward in his journey with God, in obedience to him? So verse 18 is... Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and this is after he had told God, I don't want to do this. Get somebody else for the job. And God supplied Aaron to go along with him. And then after all of that, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and note what he said to him. Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are alive. He just came from Egypt, went home to Midian to see his father-in-law, and he says to the father-in-law, let me go back to my own people to see if any of them are alive. And Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have given you um, the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah, this is his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you're a, bride, uh, a bridegroom groom of blood to me, she, he, 
she said. So the Lord let him alone. And at that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told everything the Lord had said, sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to, to perform. And Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And he also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. <coughs> So let's take a look at the questions on your outline. Again, what evidence is there in those verses that we just covered that Moses has made a decision to move forward? What did you find out? What did we just read? He went back to Jethro. He went back to Jethro, kind of asked him for permission. Next step is what? Jethro says, okay. And then he takes his family, loads them up on a donkey. Can't you just picture that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> a wife and two kids and a donkey and stuff. <laughs> All right. Puts them on a donkey and begins the journey back. Now, is there anything else in that portion that we've read that lets you know that he's made a decision to move forward with God? <laughs> All right. Actually, his son was circumcised, not by Moses, but by Sephora, by his wife. Actually, in an act of disobedience um, on Moses' part, Moses should have taken care of that earlier. <coughs> and before Moses can worship and lead the children of Israel, he had to be right with God, and he was not. He had failed to do the one thing that the Lord said, this is part of the covenant that I've made with you, that you are my children. It's the sign of circumcision that allows him to be part of that family of God. And Moses was responsible for doing that. Yes? Verse 24. No. Um, let's see. Yeah. 24 is so confusing. Is that why what you just said clarifies that? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's finally following his faith and doing what God commands him, finally. And then the Lord plans on killing him. Yep. Is that why? Mm -hmm. Oh, all right. Because Moses was not in obedience to God, and the Lord planned to take his life. His wife stepped up, <laughs> got nervous. <laughs> now, we're going to read some things about his wife. There's a very little in the Bible about Sephora, his wife. The only Sephora I knew was um, Sarah Orm's grandma. <laughs> she was a lovely lady <laughs> and a great help to me, believe me. But there's obvious tension between them. And after this, um, Jethro actually takes her back home with him to Midian while Moses is leading the children of Israel out of Egypt for whatever reason. And the Bible doesn't tell us why. Okay? They're reunited later. That's just a little hint. <laughs> but anyway, he was out of fellowship with God in that area, and God wanted him to be his man, committed fully to what the Lord had commanded. So um, even though Moses maybe had missed up, messed up on that, God took care of it, made sure he was ready to go. Now, is there anything else in there that tells you that he had made a decision to move forward rather than hold on to all his fears? Yes, Anne. Well, he tells Aaron all of the Lord had told him and all about the miraculous signs and so forth. Wonderful encouragement. Aaron met him on the way. God had prepared that, and Aaron met Moses on the way. And um, Moses shared with him all that was going on, and Aaron agreed to be part of it. Sandy. Thinking of that, that's a miracle that Aaron, he is a slave there too, right. and should have been working making bricks. How did he escape Egypt exactly. at the age of 83 and go meet Moses? That's a miracle. That's a miracle, too. So God was working in all of this to prepare people that were not probably even aware that this would be something they would be involved in, and a reluctant, at first, Moses. Now, Moses begins to move forward, and we find that the reluctance that we see in him previously begins to dissipate. 
And he goes before the uh, Israelites and, and he and Aaron share uh, what God has called them to. <clears throat> and the reaction of the people of Israel to them is what at that time? Look at the last verse that I read in that section. How did the Israelites, what? They believed, they believed him and they worshiped God. Now, you're going to see that that's about the last time we read that they worshiped God. From here on, we read that they complained about God. They followed him, but they were not always happy campers. Okay, literally. I mean, I don't know how happy I would have been with some of the things that they went through. But we'll find that God wanted them to be happy campers, wanted them to be in agreement with him. So... Um, Moses made some steps forward, and at the same time, God encouraged him in what he was doing. Now, I want to go down. I don't want to spend a lot more time on that, but I want to talk about from Exodus, Exodus 5 um, that I have as caption, Who is the Lord? We're going to spend some time talking about Pharaoh. Okay? This first part of the lesson, we need to deal with who Pharaoh is and who he represents. Because as we go along, you're going to see that Pharaoh is what old Bible scholars called an Old Testament type, a type of, a picture of for us. Um, and what we have here is the beginning of God moving against the sin of Pharaoh against the children of Israel. And it is in picture a type of the enemy of mankind. Pharaoh is a, an Old Testament picture or type of Satan. And we're going to talk about why that's the case. And Moses, as the representative of Christ and of God, becomes a type of the behavior of our Redeemer, of Jesus, as the Deliverer. Now, you might think that's a stretch, but what God does is he chooses this man and he places this mantle of leadership on him. And Moses gives himself to obedience to God in a picture of how Christ was obedient also. And the redemption that is won in redeeming the Israelites from Egypt is a picture or type of Jesus working our salvation for us. Now, I'm going to explain that as we go along, but you need to be aware of those Old Testament pictures that we see reflected in our own lives and in the new. Remember, the, the uh, new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Okay, so let's start with verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey to the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you're stopping them from working. And that same day, Pharaoh gave his order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people you're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and get their own straw. And that's the beginning of the picture. And I want you to think about this um, from the standpoint of God on one side and Pharaoh on the other. This is really God's war. And it's actually um, the conflict of the ages goes on yet. Satan still works, the Lord works against him, and he enlists us to be warriors, okay? So, who is the Lord? Let me just take this from the outline, and we'll read this paragraph. In this chapter, we find Moses and Aaron standing before Pharaoh and asking him for a simple request. 
And think about that. It was a simple request that one leader might ask another. Permission to take the Jewish people on a three days journey into the desert to a place where they could worship the Lord. Now, how does Pharaoh respond to this request and what does this reveal about him? And how does the answer affect the children of Israel? Why don't you just give me some answers on that um, as we've read? So how does Pharaoh respond? Who is this Lord? I don't know the Lord. Who's the Lord? And he says, have them make their own bricks, get their own straw, do their own work. He doubles down upon it. And his answer affects the children of Israel very negatively. They're put into a position where they have to work even harder than they did before. And the, and the labor is onerous. Now, I want you just to spend some time thinking about Pharaoh and about how you can see in this response how Pharaoh is a picture of the enemy of our souls. How is he a picture of Satan? What do you know about Satan from your own experiences? I think Satan loves misery and he wants other people to be miserable just like he okay. is. Satan loves misery. He's Talk to me about, go ahead. He's a liar. He's a liar. And the father of lies, the New Testament says. I want you to think about Pharaoh's attitude toward the Lord. Tell me about it. From his words, how does he regard God? Nothing. Pharaoh sees himself as God. And in Egypt, he was worshipped as a god. Yes. I have a question. This has always bothered me when reading this. In, on, in Exodus 4, 21, the Lord said to Moses some things, and then he says, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Mm -hmm. That's always stuck with me. <laughs> Heart, the, the hardening of, of people's hearts, okay? Now, I am going to spend some time in, I think it's lesson three, talking about that specifically, but I want to tell you this. God does harden hearts of, of people and of people groups even so that they do not respond to him. But that's not that he does not want people to come to know him. And I want you to watch this carefully as we go through how God approaches Pharaoh. Okay? God never doesn't approach him with grace. He speaks to him, he warns him, he tells him what's going to happen. But at the same time, you have to remember that God knows the heart of every person. From the beginning, before time began, he knew that Pharaoh would not yield. Does that mean he didn't ever want Pharaoh to know him or the Egyptians? No. But from the beginning, he knew that Pharaoh wouldn't yield. And in order for him to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh becomes the means that God uses to execute his plan and take the Israelites out and redeem them. Pharaoh gives God reason, reason to take his people out. It's like a power struggle. It's a power struggle, and that's what you have to see. And it is always a power struggle. Do you ever feel like Satan's on one side of you and on the other, God is on the other? Do you ever have issues in your family where you can feel the power of Satan working against you or against decisions you're making? It's a power struggle. But the power of Jesus is greater than the power of the enemy. Always. He overcame him at the cross. He went to the cross. He bore our sins. He went into the grave. He rose triumphant over the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and who all of our lifetimes kept us subject in bondage because of fear of death. That's the picture. The Israelites in Egypt had no hope without God. They had no way to get out. They were in bondage and would have died in bondage had God not acted. And so on the hardening of hearts, you have to trust the God of the ages 
the God of eternity that knows all things and knows them and how they should be accomplished better than we do. That's faith. But your question's a good one, and it's stumped Bible scholars forever. Okay? <laughs> now, we'll spend a little bit more time on that, but I want you to know that God is in control here. So, when you think of Pharaoh, what else do you see about him that pictures this enemy of God? He's so arrogant. He's arrogant. He's filled with pride. He has no respect for God. None at all. How about respect for his own people? Does he have that? For the Egyptians? No. He doesn't care about the Egyptians. He's their ruler. He's their God, too. And they belong to him. How about the Israelites? Any respect? None at all. They're worthless slaves. You see... He is anti-God. Pictures antichrist. All of the Bible. I get all I can't get carried away on this because the whole Bible's hooked together. So what you see here, you're going to see again in the book of Revelation in different ways. Okay? You'll see it in the book of Matthew when Jesus works with the Pharisees and, and the Samaritan or the Samaritans and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. Satan's on one side, God's on the other. Okay? So what we have then is a conflict. And, and Pharaoh has made his intentions plain. I'm not going to let them go. Now, why is God so involved in this? Who are these people? They are his people. He has made a covenant with them, okay? They are his people that he has taken for himself. And throughout the scriptures, they picture us. You get in the picture? It's not pretty. It's not pretty. <laughs> and they weren't pretty, neither the Egyptians nor the Israelites. But they are God's people. And so here we have Pharaoh on one side. I will not let them go. They do not need to worship you. God says they are my people, and you will let them go. That's what he says throughout all of this chapter that I'm not going to read. <laughs> now, let me take this. Um, number two, the question down at the bottom under that section says, we know from God's statements to Moses that God is about to enter into judgment on Pharaoh and upon the nation of Egypt. It will be a terrible and fearsome judgment like no one has ever seen. We need to know two things. First of all, what is at the heart of Moses' Request. We know that it was God's request given through Moses. So at the heart of Moses, God's request to have his people be allowed to go and worship him. What is at the heart of his request? We've kind of talked about it, that they are his people. Pharaoh says, no, they're mine. Now, <clears throat> underneath that though isn't it about you have to know who I am he says to Pharaoh I will show you who I am but the heart of it is that this is his people and in the release of his people God is going to show Pharaoh who he is and all of Egypt will see it alright now is such a judgment justified because God is a righteous judge, and he's judging Pharaoh. So let's think about this. Is this justified? If God doesn't act, what happens to his people? They stay longer. 
They will remain slaves forever. Mm -hmm. They will die in slavery. They're God's people. There's so much in here. <laughs> They'll die in bondage. If God does not act, he must act. And the judgment is justified because they are his people. But I want you to see something. <clears throat> I want you to think about John 10, 10. Many of you know that verse because it completes this picture. The thief comes to kill and to destroy. I am come that you might have life and have it in bondage. No, have it more abundantly. Do you see the picture? It pictures for us the how and the why of our salvation. If God had not acted in Christ Jesus, we would be slaves of Satan forever. Judgment is justified. A righteous God must act on behalf of his people. You getting goosebumps? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but people have to choose. Yeah. People have to choose. And we'll be talking about that too. These words that we're talking about, election and predestination and hardening of hearts, those are all hard theological and doctrinal things. We'll be touching on some of them. But these are God's people that he has chosen. We are chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began. Ephesians, what is it, 2-1 or 1-1? Paul, Paul writes to them, you're chosen in Christ Jesus from before the world began. So then we are people that he has decided to redeem. Okay? Questions before I go on? Are you interested? <laughs> okay. How much, how much do you think the Hebrew people were worshiping God that were in bondage? We're going to talk about that too, but the people that are in, he, in, in, Israel, in Egypt at this time were not worshiping God. They didn't even know who he was. You see, Moses hardly knew. When he appeared to Moses, Moses was stumbled and you know, surprised that God would speak to him. So when God began to speak through Moses to the Israelites, yes, they bowed down and worshiped him because they wanted to get free. But as we go on here, we're going to find that the Israelites were not faithfully worshiping God in Egypt. You think Pharaoh would have allowed that? No. no. Because that would mean that Pharaoh was not God. And they've been in slavery for like 400 years. Too. 430 so, years. How many generations is that really? And, and after those, after the godly generations died, people wander away. They don't know. Yes, well, Sandy. think about it. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They were all flawed men. Mm -hmm. Then Jacob had his 12 sons. What they did to Joseph shows they were flawed men. Yes. And those were the spiritual leaders of the people who went into Egypt right. to begin with. So they had a very uh, weak foundation. And they kind of think anyway. You think? <laughs> and, and after Joseph died, the Bible says that, after Joseph died, the, the pharaohs who came after him did not know God or know about God. And so the people wanders away. No, they were not godly people just raring to follow God out. They got comfortable there before they became slaves. Well, and the other thing is they lived in Goshen, which was like the most fertile part because when, when Joseph settled his father's family, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh at that time allowed him to take them into the land of Goshen, which is where the Nile would flood in the spring and, and water everything and make it green and growing, and it was profitable land, good land. And that's why they thrived, you see. But after Joseph was gone, they became slaves because there were so many of them. Remember, we talked last week that the Pharaoh became worried. Now, we've got to get through this. <laughs> so we're on page two. We're going to go over to chapter 6. 
Pharaoh's refusal to, to let the Israelites go to worship their God and their continued mistreatment by their slave masters pushes God to act. And as Moses cries out to God on Israel's behalf at the end of chapter 5, because the Israelites by that time were, you know, starting to break down a little bit. Why have you brought me to trouble this people? They're complaining already at the end of chapter 5. God responds and he says to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand, he will let my people go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. He won't even want them there. So I want to look at verses one through five in chapter six, and we'll talk about them. And then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I've heard their groaning, and I've, um, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites, who the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. And I want to stop there, and then we'll go on with the last verses. So how does God identify himself to Moses and the Israelites in those verses? And why do they need to know that before their journey begins? Why does he say these things to them? To set them, them apart from the, the nations around them and himself apart from the gods of Egypt. He says, now this is, this hooks us up with what we've just been talking about. In verse 7, he, he says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. He's talking about the children of Israel and Egypt. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and so on. And I've heard the groaning of the Israelites in Egypt. So he wants his people to know, first of all, that he's coming to them based on the covenant promises that he's given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land of Canaan, to be their God. And then in verse um, 2, and your outline says verse 6, it's mentioned in verse 6 also, but in verse 2, in verse 6, in verse 7, God says, by my name, the Lord, all caps, he had not made himself known to his people while they were in Egypt. All right, it says I had, he had not made himself known to his people. And he says that in here, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. The What's he talking about? The, yeah. To the, tell me what you think he's talking about. He didn't make his name, the Lord, known to them. I've got some stuff down below that you can kind of look at because there are various names of God and he gives them to his people and oftentimes at the time that something happens, for example, when Abraham offered Isaac on the altar, um, Abraham began to call him Jehovah Jireh, my provider. The Lord provided the lamb. Now, in the beginning, and I have it down there on your notes, Elohim, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. And that's talking about our God, the triune God, as the creator of the universe. And that is how God made himself known in the beginning, by God, the one true God, the creator God, the God who created his people and fellowshiped with them. In, Ex in Genesis chapter 17, <clears throat> and let me say this, in Genesis 17, 1, he talks about himself as El Shaddai, but, but between Genesis 1 and Genesis 17, there are other names of God that will appear. In Genesis 17, 1, he specifically appears to Abraham as El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who is greater than all. 
okay? Because Abraham needed to know him in that way at that time. And so when he says, I did not appear to them by my name, the Lord, that is the name, the Lord God, Jehovah. And Jehovah is the covenant name of God. And up until now, he's saying, I did not appear to my people in Egypt by my name, Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God. For whatever reason, maybe because, whatever reason, I can't even pretend to know. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that that was the only time that name was introduced. Because before we get to this portion in Exodus, he calls himself the Lord God Jehovah in the book of Genesis as well. But he didn't make the meaning known to the people in Israel at that time. Didn't remind them that he was the covenant-keeping God. How's that? Didn't remind them of that fact. They didn't know it. They weren't taught. And so he appears to them now at this particular point as the covenant-keeping God. I'm rescuing you because you are my children. And I will keep my covenant with you to take you out of here and take you into the land that I promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the Lord. Okay? So he has some teaching to do along the way, and that's what they're going to learn. And believe me, the lessons they learn as God, the covenant-keeping God, are tough ones. They're tough. They're tough for us to learn, too. So... Let's go from there down to verses 6 through 8. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, the Lord God Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land um, that I promised with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. So it gives them these great promises, and they still struggle to believe. Now, I have on your outlines, where um, I would like you to have written in what God promised. But I'm going to um, just ask you to call out some of those things that God did promise to them. These are his promises to his covenant people. It's at the bottom of um, page two. I will what? What does he promise? I will bring you to the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to your people. What else? I will be your God. I'll be your God. Bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I'm going to take you out of bondage. What else? Take you as my own people. Take you as my own people. Now I want you to think about this as you're saying these words. These are words of redemption. These are words that Jesus says to us. And I want to have you turn. Um, let's just look at these. I'm going to give you the right reference here. <clears throat> I want you to look at Luke 4, 18 and 19. Because I think you'll see that the promises that God gives here as Redeemer are very similar to what Jesus speaks. <coughs> Jesus stands in the temple umpteen years later, and he says to the people around him, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. What's that good news? Freedom from slavery. Freedom from sin. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. 
What are the Egyptians and the Israelites? What are the Israelites? Prisoners. Freedom for prisoners. And recovery of sight to the blind. They had no knowledge of who God was. And Jesus is here to say, I'm going to give you sight so you can see me and know me. And to release the oppressed. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm going to bring you into the land that I have promised. And for us, actually, that's bringing us into the land of glory. But do you see the picture? What we're reading now in the Old Testament is coming true in the new. And we are seeing a picture of redemption and God acting on our behalf to free us from the hand of the enemy and bringing us into the kingdom of his own dear son. And a great story. <coughs> now, I'm going to just keep you a couple minutes more before Michelle steps up. On, in Exodus 8, or 6, I mean, I'm going to just read a couple of verses here. Um, the role of Moses is outlined, and, and he, God sets his parameters for the battle. I have to find where I have this in chapter 7, I think it is. If you find it before me, let me know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I better go back to Exodus instead of being in Matthew. <laughs> All right. Why don't you start at verse 28 in chapter 6? I want to just read a couple of these. Because what, what God does is he tells Moses exactly what's going to happen here. When the Lord spoke to Moses in 6.28, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell the king of Egypt everything I tell you. And Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And then the Lord said to Moses, now get this part. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Now, normally, God would have spoken to Moses, but Moses is saying, I don't want anything to do with that. So you're, then Moses then is like God to, to Aaron. And Aaron becomes the prophet that speaks to the people. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment, and I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. And from there, Moses goes forward and goes before Pharaoh. And what we have in that next portion of scripture is Moses um, before Pharaoh performing signs and wonders that God has told him he would perform. And the first one that we read about is um, down in verse 8. I'm just going to read this quickly. The Lord said to Moses, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh, and just as God had said, he asked for a miracle, and Aaron throws his staff on the ground. What happens to it? It becomes a snake. But the magicians could copy that. So what's so great about it? Do you see the greatness in it? Kind of scan down from there, down to the verse 13. Moses' snake ate the other ones. Moses' snake devours the snakes that the magicians are able to produce. Because the Lord uh, has made it so that death is swallowed up in victory. The rod of the Lord is that sign of authority in Moses' hand. And as Moses casts that down, or Aaron casts it down, the Lord then gives power from on high that that rod turns into a snake able to devour 
all that the enemy has before him, and it becomes a symbol of authority and power. Now, um, its effect on Pharaoh. How did did it change his mind? It hardened his heart, and, and God allowed his heart to be hardened. Nothing moves Pharaoh, and we're going to learn that throughout this. So um, I think I'm going to stop right there, let Michelle take over and, and kind of wrap things up. But I want you to see and keep in mind as you go on in this that the Lord is in control here between two powerful entities, himself and the king of Egypt. I gave you five more minutes this time. I'm just going to have you turn yours off so yes. we don't have any issues. Oh, yeah. Now turn off. the mics off. Marcia, just mute it. Don't turn it off. I just muted it. We had some loud sounds this morning. Our, our mics are not working so well. Okay, so we're in the part of the lesson that says class discussion at the top. And I want to um, <clears throat> keep going back to Romans 15.4. I know some of you weren't here last week, but I want to reiterate it each week because before I even study this, I'm praying to God and saying, what, what can we take from this lesson? What can we take from your word, Lord? And, and, and lead me as I develop these questions. And Romans 15.4 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, that we might have hope. So it's for us to look at how God is working through what these people are enduring and what's happening. And God is always good. And to get to know his character is going to help solidify our faith and give us hope. So that's kind of the angle that I'm coming from when I write these questions and developing them um, throughout you know the story so up to this point we have um if you can go back now to um exodus four five and six that's kind of where we're going to kind of start over a little bit and try to apply these things that marcia had just talked about we have moses who was so reluctant to go forward decides to go forward with jethro and with his family he has that little hiccup where he needs to be obedient and then um you know, the people are worshiping while they're waiting, even though they're slaves there at the end of four. And then he comes to finally greet Pharaoh. Like he's he's accepted what God has called him to do. And what happens? The door is slammed shut. So he's walking out in faith. The door is slammed shut and it's made worse for his people. So the question that I propose to you is, can you recall a time in your life when you stepped out in faith? And what happened? Because it always isn't wonderful, is it? it? It sometimes is hard, like really hard, especially if you're going before a Pharaoh person to say, this is the God that I serve. And they're just like, I don't know your God. I want nothing to do with, you know, that kind of pain. Or sometimes it's really great when you step out in faith too. So what do you think? Has, has anybody, if you did this lesson before, have you thought of anything that you would be willing to share where it kind of like things were going good? You thought God was calling you and wham, all the door slammed shut. I think, like, when I first became a believer, um, the doors of uh, your friend shut for me. Yes. And, you know, I, I guess that I trusted God so much that he always had me mm -hmm. in the palm of his hands, unless I looked at how, how much they didn't like me. <laughs> right, you focus. I get my focus on him, that's why. When I... Um was thinking about this and thinking about the lessons that Marsh and I have taught. I thought about Abraham. Do you remember when God promised him that he would be, there'd be a seed, you know, and then Lot was separated from him and he was kind of in despair and he was having that moment. What did God say to him in that vision? He said, I am your shield and I am your great reward. So for us in moments when the door is slammed shut, for Moses here when the door is slammed shut, Moses walked out in obedience, first of all. And that matters to the Lord that he walked out in obedience, right? Because it's going to strengthen who he is because he's going to have the door shut a lot of other times as we walk through all these plagues, right? But the other focus is that I'm following what you wanted me to do, and that's my reward, that I'm following you, you know, that step by step you're going to take me through. So I would think when you have situations in your life where the doors are being slammed shut, to know the reward that God has softened your heart is 
is a great reward and a great shield in those times of, you know, hard trials. So that was number one. And then number two, I want to think, and Marcia touched about this a lot, but Pharaoh is very strategic, you know, in that whole picture of Satan and his new form of oppression. He, what does he do? What does Pharaoh do in this new form of oppression? He makes the work harder. And he calls them out. He tells them that they're lazy. You know, this kind of like, you're not worth, you're not worthy. You know, you're not worthy of that. And then also, you know, to keep them so distracted by your work. And, and I feel like when you think about today's times, that is not much different than now. To tell you that you're not worthy, that God's not really there. Who is this God? I don't know who he is. That's his answer. And to keep us so distracted by our work and by the bondage and all that. You know, the tactic isn't very new. I think he also successfully made them angry at their leader. Yeah. Caused division. Divi yes. And then I don't know if you guys picked this up when you were reading, but actually the leaders over the slaves were their own people. Yeah. So he set it up so he can deliver the word. And then you're, you're at odds with your own people, you know. And then also part of his whole um, strategic is, too, that let's keep them separated. If, he, if, God, if Moses is talking about God and bringing God forward, and then all of a sudden he's like, you need to go find your own straw now. Well, they're going to have to disperse. We're not going to be able to get together and say, well, what if Moses is true? You know, there was the God of our past, you know, and keeps them all from meeting each other, you know, being with each other. And I, and I see that happening today. I really do. You know, just disperse people. I have that he tries to scatter and weaken. Yes. That's summarizing that. Scatter and weaken. And then the people are called, you know... Pharaoh's like, these are my people, and they're going to serve me. And God is like, I am calling my people to serve me. You can either serve the bondage or you can serve the Lord. And then one thing I was when I was going through what really touched me is um, it doesn't mean God is saying you are just free to do whatever you want. I mean, we know that as Christians. You know, if you tell someone that being a Christian is so easy, I, I don't know that that's always the truth, right? You know, so you have freedom you know, from the bondage, because you're going to serve a leader who loves you, who cares about you. Pharaoh is self-serving, and to that effect is the bondage. And then God, eventually, as we know the story, is going to teach them how to serve him, you know, with the commandments and, and how to trust and obey him through the works of the manna and stuff like that. I wanted to just add that the devil is using the strategy of removing God from schools, mm -hmm. you know, from education, and it's destroying, um, it's destroying our children. So um, I, I think we really have to work on that a lot. Yep. On repeat. Yep, he, she was saying that how God, another, or not God, Satan uses the strategy of removing God from our schools and from our children. You know, and how that is destructive. And it's like his schemes are not new. You you see this. And um, as Marcia was saying, this Pharaoh is not Satan, but a picture of Satan. You know, and you see how God um, works to oppose that. So then question number um, three there, I put the Israelites become so fed up, they call out Moses. And that happens around 520, where they say, you have made us a stench to Pharaoh. They're actually mad at Moses for getting in the middle of this now, because now they're blaming him and they have to work harder. So then you think about Moses going back to those old rejection pains, right? Where he tried this before and he stepped out and it wasn't the right timing. It wasn't necessarily God's timing. And then he fled and went to, to Midian, you know? And so Moses is definitely, you know, come from his safe place of Midian. And now he's enduring these hardships for the will of God. And sometimes that's what our, that's what our story looks like to endure some hardships. You know, what does Jesus say? To, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up my cross. You know, it isn't going to be just, you know, easy peasy. And, um, to think about the connection between Moses and Jesus, what I was getting at is that Jesus endured a lot of pain to deliver us. And um, starting with the rejection of his own people. Yes, yeah, starting with the rejection of his own people. And, you know, Pharaoh, in his heart of unbelief, 
has such disdain for God's people to just continue the owner, the owner's um, just pain that he put upon them. And that, you know, he, I'm sure he understood to an extent the power of God, maybe had heard of it or whatever. But when God starts inserting his power, boom, he just gets so upset. I don't know who he is and I'm not going to follow him and just digs his heels in. So then at Exodus 5, 22 to 23, I put summarize in your own words the message that Moses is telling God. Moses is talking to God, but what is his focus? So at this point, the people are rejecting him. He stepped out in faith. The door got closed. And in 22, 522, it says, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. What is he essentially saying to God? It's what? It's worse now. What you said isn't working, and you're God. Why did you send me? And why did you send me? I told you I didn't want to go. I told you I wouldn't be good. You know? And his focus is so much on what? The here and now. The here and now and Pharaoh's power. Pharaoh's not letting them go, and you're God, and, you know, he's, he's impressed with Pharaoh more so than he is impressed with God at this point. But Moses is growing. And what I do like about Moses is that when the door was slammed shut, it wasn't, I'm giving up on this whole Christian thing, you know. Obviously, he didn't say Christian thing, but you know what I'm saying for us. He didn't give up. He went back to God and said, this doesn't make sense. And our God is big enough for us to go to him and say, this isn't making sense. It, it just goes to show that in, in the midst of, of Pharaoh appearing to be more powerful and winning, that God's plan is still in motion. Mm-hmm. And nothing's going to interfere with that. And that so applies to our lives. And so encouraging. So with Moses being discouraged, he's going back to God to find out what's next. Mm-hmm. And I, I give Moses props for that, right? <laughs> I mean, he could have turned around and said, that's it. Yeah, back to Midian, <laughs> Jethro, <laughs> coming home. <laughs> right. And I'm out of here. In um, question number five, this relates to that, is that we all have times when we feel like we're making bricks without straw. Or like Moses just was that we're not understanding the will of God. And so I propose the question when we're thinking about what we focus on is what does the pain, when does the pain in the immediacy of your circumstance seem more real than God? When you take your eyes off God. When you take your eyes off God. But also there are times when you're in, in the midst of a huge loss and yep. you're, you are lost. Yep. You know, and that's just how life goes. A lot of people here have lived through that. Mm-hmm. You know, part of you says, God, I know you're with me, but part of you is just, I have no idea what's going on, anything at all. Yep. And that's why I think it is so important for us, you know, to read our Bible, to be in these circumstances. And because when those times come, when you're just so depleted of everything and the pain is so hard and you're not understanding, to say, this is how God was. This is how God is. And God is good to repeat that to yourself. And I always think in in most situations that I've had in my life, hindsight is always much clearer than going through it. (laughs) But to remember those hindsight situations, to to glean off of that and just, you know, grabbing on to that hope, which we have. Because we are Israelites and we forget. Yes. (laughs) So question number six on the back, this is um, in chapter six of Exodus, the Lord says to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. And here's what I like. It is almost as if I take that and I think about, had you not experienced that door being slammed shut? Had you not seen and focused your eyes on Pharaoh so much along with all the Israelites people, now you're going to see what I'm going to do. Almost like you had to have that trial in order for it to become clear. And God is going to make it clear. So the NYWS, now you will see. And if Fair would have immediately said yes, I contest that it would have been like, Moses is our hero. Moses did it for us. He's the one that delivered us. He's the one with the strength. 
when in fact we know that is not the situation. So the question then that I propose there is, in what ways do trials make us see better? Why do you think they were led down this path? Why are we sometimes led down our trials? Because we lean more on God. It helps us to lean more on God. Sometimes, don't you think, when you come to the end of your own rope, it's where you're like mostly engaged with God, or you're like at a time where, you know, hopefully you can be more open to his leading because you've come to the end of your own. They're, they're faith builders. Like every time you go through something like that, and then you go through something again, it's like, oh, I remember what God did in this situation. Mm-hmm. And that happens. I just found that happens time and time again over the years. And I think you then maybe a little easier, easily lean on God. And it's like, okay, God's going to take care of this. Like maybe quicker the next time. Instead of agonizing that, oh, what do I do or whatever. You can go back to those times and say, nope, God took care of this situation. He took care of this situation. He's going to take care of it this time. Yep. Kind of going off of that, this this followed the Israelites. You know, the, the... God brought them out of the land of Israel or out of the land of Egypt. That was repeated over and over and over again as this reminder of what God had done and to other nations Mm -hmm. that saw, oh, these are the people that God brought out of Egypt. Um, It it carried like a a weight with them in in not their power, but the power of their God. Yep. Uh, In a a respect for their God because of what they had lived through. And we'll see... Um, not that I'm giving it away, but what happens is the people start to see the finger of God through all of this. The, even the Egyptians see it, you know, and, and then the other people surrounding. And then also God, God implores them to pass this down. Like this is very important for you to be able to see all the struggles and how I helped all the way along. It's important to spread that to different generations, Can you know. So even in our own trials to say, how can what we've been through help people around us or our own family? I think of song lyrics, because I love music. Mm-hmm. Um, and and lyrics that come to me are, as if it all just happened overnight, we wouldn't know how much it means. And if it all just happened overnight, we wouldn't learn to believe in what we cannot see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we can all say that we're in agreement that the things that we have suffered through the trials have not all been for nothing. At some point along the way, it's led us closer to God. And that hindsight is clearer, yes, because being in struggles, that's not easy. But hopefully, you know, by the reoccurring of things, you can grab onto God quicker and have remember the hope that you have. And when you don't have hope, go to people that have, you know, there to lift you up or go to the word and pray, you know. And then in number seven here, I talk about the importance of faith to God and that um, as he's revealing who he is, he's being personal and an intimate God. I am the Lord. As this intimacy continues and as their struggles are going to continue, the plan of God is to reveal himself and grow their faith, reveal himself and grow their faith. And it takes a long, steady progress. Um, If anybody listened to the sermon this past, he had that diagram where it was like, yes, instant justification through Christ. But then there was that sanctification line where that, you know, can be like this. And that's this. This is going through trials and God just, the importance of faith is so important to him. Why? Why is it? And in Hebrews eleven six, why is it so important that God would work on our faith more so than it, the importance of a perfect circumstance? Yes, it's impossible to please God. We we live by faith, not by sight. So that muscle needs to be stretched, encouraged, and grown. Um, James 1.3 there says, The testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that we may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. And, you know, I would never walk up to somebody in the midst of a struggle and be like, well, that was for perseverance, and you're just so much more mature now. You know, that, that's not what I'm saying. But through looking back and just being able to come around and love people that are going through those situations, that would be your best your best mode. I'm definitely talking about this from in hindsight, not in the midst. Is that clear to everybody? Um, 
the last thing here is in Exodus 6, 2, <clears throat> what, what Marcia went over through, those seven, I will, I will be your Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves. Um, we compare that to Matthew eleven twenty eight, and And I asked you guys to spend some time and, and maybe when we close here and you leave, look up those scriptures and spend some time thinking about the promises and finding the freedom that we serve a God who is good. We do not have a self-serving Pharaoh type, you know, God that we are serving. He is good, even through the worst of our circumstances. And that, um, you know, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest for my yoke is light because he loves us and he's doing what's best for us. And the best place that we can be is worshiping and knowing God because God is good. Okay, so let's close with prayer. Lord, I just thank you for your word. I, I pray that we would be able to look at the scripture and see what you're doing in order that we might see your character and really just glean off of that because circumstances are coming that are hard or always will be. And I just pray that we would grow to the maturity that you would want us to be and see the importance of our faith and just love on people around us that are hurting as you love on us and call us to do that, Lord. I, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for everybody that comes in your Holy Spirit that guides us as we learn. And I just thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.